right. Good morning. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I should probably, uh, <clears throat> I got five boys that have all wrestled, one that wrestled for Wesleyan last year and one that's in his senior year at Lincoln Christian right now. And uh, I should probably explain to Gordon our philosophy of sports. Once my boys got into wrestling, we got this, uh, oh, no, what happened here? Hold on. Technology is getting the best of me. I got it. All right, there we go. Man, old people and computers and tablets and stuff. Uh, we, we came up with this philosophy after my boys started wrestling, and uh, we've been involved in a lot of different sports, but our, our belief is that uh, any sport would improve if you added wrestling to it, all right? So those of you that run cross-country, just imagine wrestling incorporated into cross-country. In fact, you could get some of the wrestlers to join the cross-country team, and then they would take the best runners on the other team out for you, and then you would just sprint, you know, run to victory. So you'd be in, in good shape. Tennis, you know, you just jump over the net and, you know, take the other guy out and then spike the ball or something. I don't know. It's, I think, if, just imagine it, all right? Just, just try. I know some people who play basketball this way, right? They, they play. <laughs> I always tell my son, you shoot a basketball like a wrestler. It's not, it's not good. It's not, not pretty at all. So, <clears throat> well, hey, good to be with you all again. And we're working our way through First Samuel. And uh, Gordon has been so kind to me this morning to give me only six chapters to work, <laughs> to work through with you in, in our little time together here this morning. But I want to ask you a question before we jump into it, and we're just going to kind of cruise through and, and hit the highlights and then try to put some shoe leather on it, right? Put something on it to, to walk out the door with. But before we get into it, I want to ask you if, if you ever wonder, right, do you ever ask yourself this question, maybe you're in, in Bible class doing these things, or at church, or here in chapel, do you ever, ever wonder, especially when you're going through these Old Testament stories, uh, why does this matter, <laughs> right, do, do you ever, th- I'm, I'm sure you're way more spiritual and like super godly than me, so you would never think such a question, but I, I just want to give you a few reasons why does it matter to go back and go through these old ancient stories from this ancient book? And of course, the first answer is, well, this is the inspired word of God, right? So literally, the uh, you know, all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe gave us this book. And so everything that it has to say is, is important and, and relevant to us. But also beyond that, I think it's really important as we jump into these things and, and you're going through this, these things this year to remember that these are true stories. Okay, this is actual history. I, I struggle with this sometimes as I teach parents or even as I'm raising my own kids. You know, sometimes we have this bookshelf for our kids and we read them bedtime stories. <clears throat> and it's almost like there's no difference between, you know, whatever fairy tales we're reading to them or telling them and the Bible stories. And they just kind of all mesh together. But the reality is, every single thing in this book is true, is actual, right, is reality. It is not only history, it is his story. And so we want to we treat it as true history. And so then thirdly, Romans 15.4. Romans 15.4 tells us that whatever was written in earlier times, thinking of the Old Testament, right? Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our encouragement, right? So that through perseverance, we can have hope. And so we find encouragement, we find hope, we find examples for ourselves in the Old Testament, both positive and negative, and we're going to see both of those in our text this morning. So just to to remember, the Old Testament matters, right, the things that God's Word has to say to us matters, and so we kind of stand at attention and we eagerly receive what God's Word has for us. And so you're coming 
into this with some background, right? That, that God has rejected Saul as Israel's king and that he has commissioned Samuel to anoint David as Israel's next king. And so then God's king-elect, David, serves in Saul's court. He defeats the Philistines, Goliath. Uh, Jonathan, Saul's son, is devoted to David, their best friends, and, and he leads uh, 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 Jonathan is led, I should say, to, to actually sacrifice or to step aside from the throne because he's a godly man and he recognizes that David is the next king. And he acknowledges David's divine right to the throne. And so David becomes this growing threat in Saul's mind. Saul is completely overtaken by jealousy, by pride, by arrogance, and by a disobedient heart. But David is protected from Saul's wrath. He's protected by Jonathan and Michael and Samuel and by all the providential circumstances even that we'll see today, the way that God leads and guides and provides for David. So Saul is openly rebellious against God. All of this is manifested by his refusal to give up what God has said can no longer be his. Just a reminder not to stubbornly hold on to something that God says we ought not have. Not to stubbornly hold on to sin or to pride or to arrogance or jealousy. And so David is protected again by by Jonathan from Saul's murderous intent in chapter 20. And that brings us all the way up to our chapters for this morning, chapters 21 to 26. And David is now completely separated from Saul's court. He is considered and viewed by Saul and his army as an outlaw, as a rebel. In fact, if you turn to, to Psalm 34 and you read Psalm 34, it's actually written in the context of one of David's narrow escapes during this time from Saul. And listen to how Psalm 34 describes David's trials and his triumphs during his flight into exile. It says, Many are the affections of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Many are the afflictions, I should say. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. So this is exactly what's happened. David is being constantly pursued, constantly afflicted, and, and all of these hardships, and yet he's, he's continually reminding himself, God is providing. God is taking care of me. God has made a promise, and I can, I can count on God to fulfill his promise. So Saul becomes even more active in his pursuit of David. David knows that he's the future king, but he still has to to flee. If you can imagine knowing that you're going to be the king, but you're just like on the run, just living on the the road, uh, fearing for your life constantly, actually flees to a Philistine city where he he basically fakes being insane uh, just to, to make it there. Make, make it through that, uh, that time in, in chapter 21. Then he flees again to Adullam, where a band of followers form around him. And so there's this attempt to protect himself from Saul. And David uh, goes to that Philistine-controlled territory. He ends up with uh, initially about 400. Later on, it grows to about 600 Israelites gathered around his leadership. And so he's kind of forming his own little army but even this band of mighty men is nothing compared to the army that Saul has at his disposal Saul is is so fierce in his hatred for David that you see in chapter 1 and chapter 22 that he's actually killing God's priests for helping David but David is listening to the Lord's commands he actually goes during this time 
at the behest of, of the Lord, at the, uh, under the, the lead of the Lord, he goes to the Israelite city of Kalah from, uh, to, uh, or sorry, to rescue the Israelite city of Kalah from the Philistines. So here David is, here Saul is being jealous and hateful and murdering priests, and David, even as, he, as he's on, trying to preserve his own life, is going and being the hero, yeah, going and being a, a godly man of courage. Saul is so devoted to the destruction of David that he actually tries to use that moment where David is heroically rescuing people to try to trap David. God warns David that he should flee, and so he flees again to the wilderness area just west of the, the Dead Sea, if that rings a bell geographically for you. And it says in chapter 23, verse 14, Saul sought him every day. But God did not deliver him into his hand. So you have kind of these two things. One is this very powerful, very hateful king pursuing David. But then on the other side of that, you have David's God. And David's God is the one delivering him. David's God is the one protecting him. And while Saul is hunting David, Jonathan and David meet again. They confirm their covenant, their uh, bless or their, uh, their, their mutual agreement and trust to bless one another and to look out for each other. Again, in uh, 1 Samuel 23, 16 to 18, go ahead and look at that. It says, And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horish and encouraged him in God. Thus he said to him, Do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul my father will not find you. And you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And Saul, my father, knows that also. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed at Horish while Jonathan went to his house. Now, I just want to point out, how cool is it that Jonathan is encouraging David? If anyone in this story has a reason to be jealous, if anyone in this story has a reason not to like David, not to be on David's side, it would be Jonathan. And we would probably understand that. And yet here, Jonathan tells David that both he and father know that David will be king. He's just reassuring David. The word of the Lord is true. God's word is going to happen just as God said, and we all know it. And guys, those are the exact kind of friends that we need. Friends who will come alongside us in times of trouble and times of hardship and discouragement and remind us of the promises of God and remind us of the faithfulness of God. So David has several narrow escapes from Saul, and then look at uh, Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 1 Samuel 23, 27 to 28. It says, but a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went to meet the Philistines. Therefore, they called the place the Rock of Escape. So literally things being named after David and God's faithfulness to David to help him escape. Saul runs off to, to rescue Israel from Philistine invaders. And David takes this opportunity to flee to En Gedi, which is kind of an oasis on the western shore of the Dead Sea. It's an area that's surrounded by caves. And so the caves are a good place for David and his men to hide. And they continue to escape from the hand of Saul. And then what we see in chapters 24 to 26, we see two opportunities that David has basically to, to take Saul's life, to end this whole conflict, to end this whole thing, basically just murder Saul and get this whole thing over with and become king. And so we see David's opportunity to kill Saul 
in uh, 1 Samuel 24, 1-7. to <clears throat> And as soon as Saul is, is finished with the Philistines, he returns to his pursuit of David, right? 1 Samuel 24, 1. And when he heard that David is at En Gedi, he takes 3,000 men to find him. So Saul's obsession with killing David, again, is revealing something about his heart, that he's never submitted to God's authority. And when there had been an opportunity for, for his king to, be, to continue, Saul disregarded God's commands, right? So in other words, Saul could have had his kingdom remain. He could have stayed king. He could have continued with God's blessing by living a life of obedience to God. But he chose instead to reject God and to go his own way, and yet now he's continuing to try to hold on to this kingdom. And so Saul is passionately trying to preserve his reign, and he's futilely trying to supersede God's plan. Imagine putting yourself in opposition, right? I mean, just imagine yourself... We talk about like uh, wrestling, you know, on the other side of the wrestling mat or in the other side of the, the boxing ring. <clears throat> and uh, your opponent on the other side of the ring is God. And that's literally what Saul is doing is he's trying to fight against the plan that God has revealed to him. But God is sovereign over all of this. <clears throat> God is sovereign over Saul's anointing. He's sovereign over Saul's rejection. He's sovereign over the most mundane activities of human life. Even when Saul goes to the bathroom, <clears throat> God is sovereign. Now, that seems like a weird thing to say, right? But you know the story, don't you? This is where the story gets really interesting. Chapter 24, verse 3, right? What happens is that Saul enters the cave to find a private place to tinkle, right? And David and his men are hiding in the back of the same cave. And Saul doesn't know it. And so this is the classic case of the hunter becoming the prey. David's men challenge David. They're like, dude, this is your chance. Like, this guy's going to the bathroom. He's right there. He doesn't even know you're here. Just like, you know, just like whack him and like get this done with and like become king. In fact, look at 1 Samuel 24 verse 4. The men of David said to him, behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. And so they're saying, like, not only are they saying, like, you should do this, but they're saying, God wants you to do this. And yet David knows that that's not true. Right? And so we have to be careful. Sometimes our, our friends, sometimes our counselors, maybe even with good intentions, Maybe even using spiritual-sounding words can give us advice that just doesn't match up with what we know the will of God is or what God's word says. And so what David does instead is it says David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. That's pretty legit, right? Pretty, pretty impressive. So instead of taking Saul's life like his men wanted him to, David sneaks up, cuts off the corner of Saul's robe, and that seems pretty cool to me. Like, I, I, I like this. That seems like a good move, right? It's kind of like the ultimate <coughs> disrespect of your enemy. I think of this as like ancient trash talk, okay? Just like being able to do that. But what's interesting about the story as you follow it is that David actually felt guilty even about doing that. You're like, this guy's trying to kill you. All you did is cut off some of his robe, <coughs> and now yet you're feeling bad about that. 20, chapter 24, verse 5 says, David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And really what it is, guys, is that David was challenging Saul's authority. He was making Saul look foolish. 
And the reality is that Saul is still the king, right? A, a king appointed by God, even though he's been rejected by God, and Saul is, and, and David has been anointed as the, as the next king, but that, that transition hasn't happened yet. And so for whatever reason, at this time, God has still allowed Saul to be in that position of authority. And so David regrets cutting Saul's robe because he knew that Saul was the Lord's anointed. And God had put Saul into a position of authority. And so for David to disrespect Saul's leadership was basically for David to disrespect God's leadership. It's a pretty strong statement here. If we really understand why it bothered David's conscience, why it bothered his heart, it makes a really strong statement to us about how important it is to respect the authority that God has given us. There are a lot of times where I look at authorities that are around me, especially when I think of our government, and I think uh, I'm not sure they are particularly worthy of my respect, right? I'm not really sure they've done anything to, to earn my respect, and so maybe I'll just kind of withhold my respect. And yet really what the Word of God tells us is, no, if, if that person is in that position, it's because God in His providence and by His sovereign plan has placed them there. And so think not only government, but think parents, teachers, coaches, uh, managers at work, all of those kind of things, right? That we respect and honor those people because they are in a position given to them by God. And we want to honor and respect God. And so really, we're just trying to worship God by honoring them, by showing respect to them. And we, when we don't honor them, when we don't show them respect, then we're dishonoring God and we're failing to worship him. Think about how much David trusted God and how much he waited for God's timing. Even though David knew that it was God's will that he would become king, he wasn't willing to accomplish God's plan through his own disobedience. Like, David could have easily justified this, right? Well, I'm going to be king anyway. God already said it. I'm just taking a quick, you know, shortcut to where God said we're going to end up anyway. But David says, no, I don't want to be disobedient. It's more important to me to honor God, to love God, to be obedient to God, is to get what I want. And you even see that eventually even, even Saul admits David's righteousness, David's goodness. When, when Saul finds out about David permitting him to live, like when he understands that David was in that cave with his men, that David could have taken his life, he is amazed. And it really shows Saul in this moment that David is very different from him. In fact, if you look at chapter 24, verse 16, it's, we see that Saul weeps. And in chapter 24, verse 20, Saul actually admits that David will become king and that the king, kingdom will be established in his hand. And even though Saul stops his pursuit of David briefly, what we really find out is that even though you have kind of this touching moment where he weeps and he admits that David will be king and, and speaks tenderly to David, what we really find out is that he's not truly repentant because it's not very much of a break. It's not very long before he is hunting David again. Chapter 25 records the death of the prophet Samuel. It also tells a pretty cool story that you can read on your own time of a woman named Abigail and her wisdom and how David is so impressed by her and her character that he marries her. Uh, ladies, let me just tell you, uh, if you hope someday to find a godly Christian man, the best way to do that is to be a godly Christian woman. That's what attracts 
a godly Christian man, is to be a woman of wisdom, to be a, a woman of character, right? Men, that's the same for you. Be a godly Christian man. That's the goal. Become what you're seeking. Become what you are hoping to attract or to have someday. Uh, in chapter 26 then, David's men again tempt David to, to slay Saul. You can see that in uh, verse 8. But David again resists the temptation. And David is pleading with Saul. He, he's begging Saul, return to the Lord. And again we see in verse 21, Saul utters this empty confession. He says, I have sinned, I have played the fool. And that's a very true statement, but it doesn't represent true repentance. So let me give you just kind of the, the conclusion of this. I want to just run through some, some distinctions, some differences uh, that, that show some, some just major differences between Saul and David, okay? First of all, Saul had been rejected by God because he ignored God's commands, right? This shows us, it demonstrates for us the importance of obedience. His submission to God's will was always partial. And you know the, the stories that come before this, right? Saul would sacrifice to God, but he wouldn't do it the way God commanded. He would destroy the Amalekites, but not completely the way God had commanded. Ultimately, Saul just doesn't have the fear of the Lord and he rebels against God and his commandments and Saul kind of has a pretend obedience a pretend repentance it's really sad to see and honestly like one of my greatest concerns for my own children being pastor's kids uh, I did youth ministry for about 25 years so my greatest concern for my students who are growing up in the church or Christian school is that we learn to say all the right things. We say all the spiritual sounding words, but our heart is actually far from God. And I think that's exactly what's going on here with Saul. It reminds me of Psalm 66, where it, it, it kind of talks about praising God. It says, shout joyfully to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. So in the midst of saying, praise God, praise God, it comes and then it says, you know, some people will actually pretend to praise God just because they, they fear God. They fear the consequences, right? Maybe it's just the peer pressure. Maybe it's not wanting to disappoint your parents. Maybe it's just like you're in the Christian bubble and this is what everyone does. And so you say all the Christian things and act all the Christian ways. But I've seen it a million times and all of your teachers have too that so many students, as soon as they get free from the home, free from church, free from those parameters, go off into a completely different lifestyle and demonstrate that maybe they were just playing Christian all along. I trust that that's not true of you. It's so sad to see it in Saul's life. He even had a pretend sorrow with tears and everything, right? I mean, Saul's the guy that, you know, if he was at camp and it was campfire night, like he's going forward and he's crying and everything. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. I think this is a really important thing for us to kind of grasp. I just go here because Saul's tears and Saul's kind of repeated 
claims to repentance and to change remind me of it. Second Corinthians seven ten says, "For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death." He says there is a, a true sorrow over sin, a, a real sorrow that the Spirit of God produces in our heart and in our life. And the way that we know that it's genuine is that it causes repentance. And to repent is to turn away from sin and turn to God, to make a a move towards God in a positive way. He says ultimately that that leads to salvation. Repentance leads to salvation. But he says the sorrow of the world produces death. That there's another kind of sorrow that's just kind of a, a fleeting sorrow might have a, a, some amount of you know, genuine sorrow to it. I, I'm, I'm sad that I'm this way. I wish I wasn't this way. I wish I could quit doing this thing. I wish I could quit acting this way. I don't know why I do this. But it doesn't turn to God, right? It's just sorry over the consequences or it's sorry uh, over you know, the, the impact on your own life. But it doesn't recognize sin as an offense against God. It doesn't You know, true confession is to agree with God about your sin. And so this is what David has. He has really a a sorrow of the world that produces death. Ultimately, what we know is that Saul simply did not love God. And the reason that we know that, at least at this stage in his life, is that we can go to the New Testament and we can see Christ repeatedly equating love for God with obedience. And if there's one thing that we know clearly Saul did not have at this time is obedience to God. And so it should be no stretch in our mind to say that if we see a a lot of complete disobedience and rebellion and disregard for God's commandments, that that life belongs to someone who does not love God. It's an important reminder for ourselves as we do what, what Paul says, which is to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. So we examine our lives to see if we have a a lifestyle of obedience, not because we believe in a work salvation or earning our way to God or anything like that, but simply because a lifestyle of obedience demonstrates that you are a new creature in Christ, that your heart has been changed and that you're headed in the right direction. And no Christian and no follower of God is perfect. In fact, we know that David is a sinner. And later in David's life, he's going to sin greatly. But we also know that David is very different from Saul. David endured hardships like hiding out in caves and being pursued by a deranged, demon-possessed father-in-law, right? Can you imagine? This is like the worst father-in-law ever. He's just like trying to to murder you. I'm going to go. As soon as I'm done here, I'm going over to my father-in-law's, and we're going to sit around. Usually what we do is we, we like make small talk for a while, and then we just end up arguing about theology, but he has never thrown a spear at me yet, right? He's, he's never tried to kill me, right? And, and David, in all of this oppression, in all of this hardship, he doesn't buckle under the peer pressure of his men urging him to kill Saul. If David could have killed Saul and perhaps become king right away, why didn't he do that? Well, first, unlike Saul, David feared God. He's not going to kill the one that God anointed because that would have been rebellion against God. And Proverbs says that the fear of God is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Wisdom. And so we just see that David has been blessed by God with uh, an awe, a respect of God. 
and with wisdom. Saul is the king over Israel. That includes David. David's supposed to serve the king, even though the king wanted to to kill him. Again, it shows us a lot about respect uh, for the authority that God has placed over us. And then lastly, David wanted to do what was right before God. If he had killed Saul, he knew that God would not have been pleased. And the greatest desire of the heart of a believer is to please God. What can I do to honor God? What can I do to please God? What can I do to, in some small way, show my gratitude, my thankfulness for all that God has done for me? It's simply to live a life of obedience, to live a life of worship. To David, pleasing the Lord was of the highest man after God's own heart. One of the key things, I think, to, to think about in regards to David's uh, is, is David's heart and to think about that in comparison to our own hearts. The Bible talks about our hearts 814 times. Not because it's particularly concerned about medical things, but it talks about our heart as the seat of emotions, as the seat of our will, the, the center of emotions and feelings and moods and passions. The Bible says we can have a joyful heart, a sad heart, an angry heart, a, a loving heart, a heart of courage, a heart of fear. All these different things to describe who we really are on the inside and what our true character is. And the two main types of hearts that scripture reveals are a heart of pride, a heart of selfishness, or a heart of gentleness and a heart of worship. And I think of Saul and David and I think of these two types of hearts. I kind of remember this old... um, Gosh, I don't even know if it was Campus Crusade or Navigators or who used to always use this, but they they, they tracked and it has like a a chair that's kind of supposed to represent like the throne, I guess, of your life. And uh, there's two pictures, right? And on one throne, it has a big S sitting on the throne. And it represents what they call the self-directed life. This is what it says. Self is on the throne. Interests are directed by self, resulting in discord and frustration. And then off to the side is a little cross to represent Christ. Christ has just kind of been relegated to being pushed off to the side, put in in the closet, and self is ruling and reigning on the throne of the life. And then in the other picture, the cross is seated on the throne, and it calls it the Christ directed life. Christ is on the throne, it says. Self is yielding to Christ. Interests are directed by Christ, resulting in harmony with God's plan. And I think this is exactly the picture that David demonstrates for us, what it looks like to live for the Lord, to follow him, and to trust him. And God is looking for followers who will let him be in control. He's looking for people who will worship him with their whole heart. Yesterday, um, my son had to go in. He, he messed his ankle up in a wrestling tournament. And uh, so he's probably going to miss a pretty good chunk of his senior season of wrestling. But uh, he, he, he had to go and get an x-ray, right? And I have a three-year-old daughter, and uh, we've been going through all of her alphabet cards, right? And so guess what? One of the alphabet cards is x-ray. So when she heard that he was getting an x-ray, she was very excited. She's three and a half. She's just very excited because she knows what that is, right? And so she was excited that he's going to get an x-ray. 
When you think about the idea of an x-ray, it's the idea to be able to, to look deeper, right? To really look within and, and, and kind of diagnose and see what the real problem is. And so that's why we did this. Like, let's figure out what we're dealing with here. And when you think of your own personal heart, right? Think about using the word of God as an x-ray to really be able to look within your heart and see where you stand in your relationship with God. To see if you are a Saul or if you are a David. Are you a man or a woman after God's own heart? And what can you do to demonstrate faithfulness and a life of obedience and a life of love that's pleasing to God? Let's pray. Father, thank you for just the opportunity to be in your word again, the opportunity to see this man after God's own heart, the way that you give us examples, both positive and negative. Pray that today we would begin to pursue hard after you to be men and women after your heart. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.